Welcome to Embargo, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I'm here, as always, with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Timothy O'Toole. What is up, Tim? What is up, Brian? Today is Well-Dressed Guest Day. Yes, Well-Dressed Guest Day. Tim and I um, threatened to throw them off because they were too well-dressed, but thankfully, they, they abided by our instructions we have two very well-dressed guests that are uh, going to be joining us in just a second. Um, but before we get there, let's just uh, dispense with the normal preliminary matters. Uh, thanks to everybody for joining us again. Thanks to everybody who listened to the most recent episode and sent in feedback, questions, comments, tweets. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, as always, we are not going to be discussing any confidential information today. We're not giving out legal advice. Any and all uh, opinions that you hear are going to uh, are solely attributable to me and Tim and our two guests who will be joining us and be introduced in just a moment. Don't blame anybody else. Blame the four of us. Um, if you don't like what we have to say, uh, if you are a fan of the pod, please subscribe. Uh, you can find us anywhere you get your content. Please give us a rating, hopefully a five-star rating. Spread the word uh, about Embargoed. We appreciate the continued support. So um, without... Um, much further delay, after some technical difficulties, we are up and running with our full cast of uh, characters for today. Um, we are, uh, as we teased on the last episode, we wanted to uh, focus this time around on uh, issues relating to forced labor, in particular, business and human rights, and as they relate most directly at the moment to what's going on in China and specifically in Xinjiang. Uh, and these are obviously topics Tim and I talk about a lot, uh, but we are bringing on today a couple of guests, our friends and colleagues, uh, Mr. Richard Mojica, third time guest on Embargo. What's up, Ricky? How are you? Hey, how's it going? And up, our other, and another one of our Miller and Chevalier colleagues, our, our good friend and first time podcast guest, Mr. Nate Langford. Nate, how are you? Thank you. Thank you. How are you guys doing? We're good. We are good. Um, and so we're very happy to have Richard and Nate on to cover this issue uh, from a, a slightly different perspective than Tim and I typically cover it from and to bring some insight and some thoughts on what's happening in this space from uh, both kind of a big picture and then from a, an enforcement perspective and then also from the compliance perspective. And our timing could not be better because, and, and we will, we invite everybody to give us credit for <laughs> being the impression here. Um, but less than an hour before we started recording, uh, there was a joint advisory that was issued by uh, the US government on uh, an, an update to the uh, Xinjiang supply chain business advisory that was issued last year, a joint update issued by Treasury State Commerce, Homeland Security, USTR, and Labor. Uh, and so th this is precisely what we are going to cover today, is what is covered in that advisory, which, of course, we would encourage everybody out there to, to download and read on their own. But um, it's timely. And, and so we, we had a suspicion this was going to be timely, and, and we were proven right before we even started. So without, um, without any more delay, let me, let me kick it to Nate to sort of um, walk us into the topic a little bit and maybe just share a little bit of an overview as to sort of some of the work he does on behalf of clients for in the business and human rights space and specifically on forced labor topics as that's going to, I think, 
tie us into and bring us into the broader discussion. So let me let me flip it over to Nate to get us started. Hey, thanks a lot, Brian. Um, and yeah, thanks again for inviting us to talk. I'm very excited about participating today. This is my favorite podcast. So I just want to get that out there right now. I'm a huge fan. Wait, wait. I think Nate, now Nate's, is the time for cross-examination on this Nate's, issue. Nate's, I'll, nose, I'll that. Nate's nose is growing as he speaks, by the way. He, he resembles Pinocchio with every word he utters. But anyway, go, go, go ahead. I love you guys. I love you guys. I'm sincere. I'm sincere. <laughs> so, um, so this, this issue of uh, forced labor and supply chains um, is really important and it cuts across a number of different areas. And so I think that's why it's really great to talk about it on a, on a program like this, um, because it, it touches on so many different enforcement tools of so many different countries. And, um, and for companies, it's a really, really prevalent risk. I mean, I think we've, we're all familiar with like the general stats issued by the ILO uh, about the prevalence of forced labor just globally, that it, it's significant and it's out there. And even though I think what makes the headlines a lot these days is issues in China and Xinjiang, um, first of all, you know, that which may sound like a niche issue, um, it really is tied into so many different things that, that companies do. And, um, and you know the materials raw materials that have been the focus of some of these different enforcement actions on the import front um really uh, touch a lot of different companies and it's not just in china it's in you know places like malaysia and so like really any company with an extended supply chain you know it's really worth paying attention to these issues um i think one other thing that you know sort of just struck me in, in talking about it on a show that usually focuses on sanctions export controls is um is really how this this what, what richard and i are going to talk about i think about import restrictions in the u.s um really showcase how the u.s in particular um goes about addressing these kinds of issues and it really focuses on cutting off decoupling uh companies that have high risks um, from the U.S. supply chain through sanctions, entities listings, and also through import restrictions. Um, and so I think the way we're looking at it is that this is, you know, that that's that highlights the U.S. approach. It's certainly like very topical um, politically because of the motivations, you know, like then the relationship between U.S. and China these days, which makes it a real big um, priority for legislators and enforcers. Um, but it's also something that's really worth looking at in the broader context, because I know that that's the way that companies are really looking at it. It's not just a US enforcement thing. It's really part of um, what some people have referred to as the galaxy of norms in business and human rights. And it's a, it's a great expression. It's one coined by our friends, um, Mitt Regan and Elise Cruz Diggs. Um, uh, wrote a great article on this that shows this galaxy of norms ranging from hard law to soft law and the different way countries are addressing this issue. And so, you know, in that galaxy are things like the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, which set out companies' fundamental responsibility to respect human rights and um, ranging into hard law things like um, sanctions and the things we'll talk about with import restrictions. Can I, can I chime in there just to, um, you know, ask, obviously we 
the collectively and the four of us work on these types of issues together uh, pretty often at this point now, uh, you know, coming at it from the different angles and the different uh, regulatory regimes you mentioned. And obviously we are U.S. lawyers. We have clients all over the globe and many of whom have ties to China and, and Malaysia and other places that have these issues. Um, you know, in terms of other jurisdictions, you mentioned the, the UN, but in terms of other jurisdictions, you know, obviously we, I know Tim and I have seen this crop up in, in speaking with counsel and clients in the UK, in the EU, but in terms of your, your sense of how the rest of the world is kind of handling this as, you know, is it in a sort of similar fashion to the way the US is, is, is it trending in that direction or what's your just sort of sense overall in terms of how the, the regulatory landscape looks uh, kind of globally on this? Thanks. It's a, it's a really good question. It's one that um, I think is subject of a lot of discussion in business human rights uh, circles because the U.S. Uh, way of dealing with this is somewhat idiot, idiosyncratic. As, remember, as, it, as it is in <laughs> sanctions, as it is in just about every area. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Um, I, I mean, I remember a few years ago when this was sort of an enforcement on the customs front was really picking up and we started sort of started seeing this stuff mentioned really explicitly in sanctions, you know, made the point of, you know, that's that really seems to be the emerging strategy of cutting people off from the economic system here. And and it was you know kind of puzzling to people from a European perspective uh, that operate under, say, um, France's duty of vigilance law, where there's mandatory human rights due diligence, or who are operating under the UK Modern Slavery Act regime, where there's mandatory reporting requirements and what you're doing to prevent forced labor. And so this, this issue of address, addressing it primarily through sanctions, import restrictions was is, is certainly a different approach. However, I think for, for companies, um, there are some unifying themes and you'll see like, you know, as, as we talk about this, like what companies are actually doing is it, it to, you know, assess risks, uh, prevent forced labor um, is informed by all of these things. And they do, they do mesh together. I think under these like principles of fundamental due diligence, being aware of your risks, taking appropriate steps to address them. Let, let me, uh, let me ask one follow-up question, both for you and Richard, before we kind of pivot to the next area um, here is, which is uh, something that you mentioned that we've talked about a lot. I think we've talked about with Richard on prior pods, which is this idea of decoupling from China and decoupling supply chains, decoupling, um, you know, multinational businesses from China. That's something you hear a lot. That's something that's obviously a high policy priority within the U.S. for a whole host of reasons. Um, you know, and to the extent that I, I would I would venture to say that you know forced labor considerations and human rights abuses are not sort of the sole instigating factor there on the U.S. side, but is certainly an important one. And I think under the Biden administration, and has one that has gained even more contraction and importance, but. I guess in terms of the that process of decoupling, I guess you know what do you what do you see in terms of the progress that's been made, or or where companies are currently in their sort of general thought process about w whether they can ride it out in China, for lack of a better term, or whether they really do need to sort of think about picking up stakes and perhaps leaving and reorienting and rerouting supply chains. I think. Um... 
I think companies are really seeing two two very you know important emerging trends and priorities um you know in the business and human rights area and just in the u.s political area um really gaining momentum and reinforcing each other um obviously i think you know we all know the political dynamics on the forced labor front you know the the cascade of reports that come out from ngos civil society groups media on what's been going on there since 2017 um in terms of uh detentions um reports of torture and and the scale of it um i think is is really grabbed the public's attention grab legislators attention and um and it it seems to be also fairly convenient for people that are really concerned about about sort of the the ties between you know for political purposes between the us and and china so i think that the the sense i think is that that most companies think that this is an area of risk that will increase in terms of enforcement and that will become a hotter issue i mean it's already hot but that um but that this is definitely a very rapidly um developing area and and so richard i'm sure you have some thoughts on that too yeah i have i have two thoughts on that one is that in 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 that way it differs from the tariffs i think uh the companies generally uh, i think the perception was that they could write that they could write out the tariffs and that there was going to be a point in time when these tariffs perhaps when donald trump left office um that it, everything would go back to to not the same as it was before, but uh, that essentially they could write out the tariffs for a certain amount of time. Uh, and in, to a certain extent, that has proven to be true. And uh, we didn't see perhaps the mass exodus out of China that that the government expected, uh, and and certainly not the uh, nearshoring or reshoring to the U.S. that that uh, the Trump administration would have uh, liked. Um, but when it comes to business and human rights and these and these these uh, human rights issues, in particular forced labor, they're touching a different nerve. And uh, and I think that nerve um, is so uh, politically charged, and it comes at a time where brands are very sensitive to the perception of of uh, consumers that uh, it is it is. Uh, causing companies to to rethink um, their sourcing decisions. And the immediate reaction that we've seen companies take or some companies take is to segregate the US supply chain from the other supply chains for now. So clearly the US is leading the charge on enforcement. So for the time being, uh, uh, companies are making or are prioritizing the efforts to ensure that their due diligence and and other uh, documentation, paperwork, efforts, et cetera, are are tight so that they can kind of demonstrate to the U.S. regulators that there is no forced labor in their supply chain. Soon, I think that this is not something where they're going to be able to this this will be only kind of a U.S. facing effort. But as uh, these laws um, get teeth around the world, we're going to see uh, you know imports into Europe, uh, imports into Canada, imports into other markets have the same restrictions. And I think this is just going to balloon into something bigger. And that will, to answer your question, in effect, have um, a more significant decoupling effect than did the tariffs. 
Yeah. One, one last thought, and I'll throw this to Tim actually, before we kind of pivot to the, to discuss enforcement, but it occurs to me or, or just my observation from seeing the, the efforts that you're talking about and, and the, we're going to talk about more in a moment with respect to the WROs and other um, import enforcement, the number of you know, blocked entities that are in the region now and U.S. sanctions considerations, the number of entities that are added, that are on the entity list um, and by all accounts sort of more forthcoming on all of those fronts is that from a, also from a practical compliance perspective that the, that that accumulation of regulatory risks is such that companies are saying, well, when is it too much? When do we just have to pick up stakes and, and leave? Or do we have to, like you said, have an entirely kind of clean or China free us supply chain because we just can't manage these risks on the ground. So Tim curious, curious your thoughts and on that. Yeah. I mean, this discussion has made me think a little bit about, you know, some of the dangers of this policy, because on the one hand, um, I do think it will have the effect of decoupling from China, but it, if, if that is really kind of part of the goal, you worry that kind of by mixing those two messages, one of, of like national security and the other of human rights, that there'll be the perception that this human rights policy is just really a fig leaf for what the US wanted to do as a foreign pro- policy priority. And if that becomes the perception, I have some worries. I, I, I'd be curious to hear what you guys think. That you know, there are other countries that are vulnerable to human rights issues, and to essentially use human rights as kind of a a wedge to get a foreign policy goal um, becomes a little problematic because then you pick and choose among your your allies and your adversaries, and it looks like we're we're picking on China because we really for a trade reason. Um, and using a human rights issue to do that. When I, I don't think that's really what's going on here, but I do think that that to the extent that it furthers our foreign policy goals that we've already expressed in terms of decoupling, uh, it does run the risk of being viewed as kind of a, a fig leaf justification for doing something that we want to do, which plays into the, the hands of the Chinese, because that's really how they're pitching this as just a an internal matter that other countries are interfering with. Um, for their own purposes and, and that they really don't care about human rights at all. Not to mention also related to that, the, the vulnerability that the U.S. has of being cast as totally hypocritical and having lacking credibility in this space in light of what's been, what was certainly what was going on for the you know four years under Trump and then perhaps even things that continue to this day on the human rights front domestically. So there is, there is that complication as well. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, in the, in the business and human rights space, it's it's really all about the affected stakeholders, you know, like just the importance, the way companies aspire to look at it, what companies are really charged with doing under the UN guiding principles and business and human rights is really to take a, you know, stakeholder affected, affected stakeholder um, approach to these kinds of issues. And the more that it becomes a, a political issue, the less it seems like it's being driven by a sincere concern like that. Um, so, so I agree that there is a very strong tension there. And that's maybe a good segue between and a good sort of refocusing at the end there of, of sort of what this is, what this discussion is really all about at core. But with that, I think we we do need to talk and and maybe to turn it to to Richard here to lead us in the next portion of this, which is enforcement and in particular. The enforcement that we're seeing out of CBP, because you know, notwithstanding what we 
Tim and I talk about all the time with respect to additions to the entity list, more sanctions under the Magnitsky Act, uh, targeting human rights abuses in China. It really does seem, and especially in the last, let's say, six to nine months, it really does seem like CBP in many ways is kind of leading the charge here in terms of the U.S. enforcement efforts and in some ways has the, the sharpest tools in the toolbox to do that. So let me so let me toss it to Richard to sort of um, share some thoughts on sort of what he's as a CBP alum, sort of what he's seeing there and, and, and what he's what he's expecting to see going forward. Yeah, this is really interesting and somewhat unexpected because a, a year ago, uh, the and, and for the past maybe two or three years before that, the the focus uh, for for trade lawyers and and certainly for customs lawyers like myself was helping companies work through the issues associated with the tariffs. That was you know what most people were doing, and that was it became this above the fold. Uh, issue that became a CEO issue, and it was one of the for, for the first times in my career where it was where a customs issue was such an important issue, and uh, it's interesting that the, that that issue was quickly replaced with this one, and for the affected companies, uh, it has become you know an issue that is as important, if not more important, uh, and uh, so it has generated a lot of interest, a lot of press, uh, and you know it's just kind of like right at the heart of the U.S.-China uh, you know relations. So it's it's just become huge, and I, I think it's just in a way unexpected that customs, an agency that has uh, traditionally um, been uh, let, let's say a less a less public, less aggressive enforcer than some of the other agencies that you guys work with more regularly. Um, very is diplomatic that, on your is part. That, very, is that the, is that the forefront? Thank you. Well, it's it just it hasn't it's 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 something no, it's that's true. new for right. everyone. It's new for customs and it's new it's new for 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 the folks that are that are for the companies and for the folks that are assisting the companies in deal with this issue. Um, and and so and so yeah so customs and DHS are at the forefront. Uh, and, and basically, you know, if we step back, um, the the laws, the law, the prohibition is quite simple. The, the tariff act of 1930 prohibits the importation of goods that are made in whole or in part with forced labor. And, uh, you, you take that relatively simple to digest law and, you know, what, what it, we've been working over the past year or so to kind of tease it out exactly kind of what it means and come up with a framework of how customs is uh, implementing the law. Um, the, 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 the deal is basically that if you have uh, merchandise that customs suspects uh, is subject to, to this law, to this prohibition, meaning that it's made in whole or in part by forced labor, it can detain the merchandise. Uh, and if it then confirms that it was in fact uh, made by forced labor, it can seize the merchandise. Uh, so uh, the, and, and the big tool here has been what's called withhold release orders. So basically as a result of uh, an investigation that generally starts with um, uh, an NGO report or some other allegation, and is and is usually also, you know, supplemented by customs' own internal investigation. Uh, the, customs will issue uh, a detention order uh, on certain products, and this withhold release order uh, 
can 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 affect either uh, one or more companies. Generally, you know, these are exporters, manuf- foreign exporters, manufacturers. They can affect all products coming from a region like cotton from the Xinjiang region in China, or they can affect all product, uh, certain products coming from a country like, um, like tobacco from Malawi. Uh, so there's different so ways to a, graph. A this. withhold release order, what you're saying is a lot more dramatic than its name might suggest, right? Well, it, but it's also <laughs> not as dramatic. It, yeah, yes, but it's also not as dramatic as it, it is reported. It's reported as an import ban, and it's not a ban. It's a detention order uh, that, that, at least in theory, and I think this is where we want to spend most of the time, in theory can be overcome. So if, you, if your product, it, it, once customs issues a withhold release order, it makes it public. And then if it determines that your the products that a company is uh, attempting to import, is are covered by that withhold release order, it will detain that merchandise and it will give the opportunity to the importer to uh, demonstrate or provide what they call proof of admissibility. Uh, and the importer then has three months to, to provide uh, proof of admissibility to convince customs to release the merchandise. That's where we enter kind of the gray zone because customs has a relatively low bar to, uh, to detain the merchandise, it must it must have reasonable but not conclusive evidence to suggest that there is that the products were were made in whole or in part by forced labor. So mind you, their customs will not articulate the reasons for why it, it how it arrived at that conclusion. But it but but in theory, at least, it's supposed to have that. And I really do think you know customs has been has been taking a careful approach. So I really do think that these detentions are generally backed by um, that reasonable suspicion, which again, everyone kind of knows is a low bar. But once customs detains that merchandise, uh, the, there are no regulations that that elaborate on exactly what the importer needs to provide in order to release the good. In other words, there is no standard for release. And that's what we've been uh, working on over the past you know, year or so. We're helping companies kind of work through that in preparing submissions to customs and working with the various customs offices to kind of provide, to kind of uh, provide information and, and, and slowly um, determine whether whether what we have provided is enough. Uh, and the, the 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 frustration so far. I'll turn to Nate after this. The frustration so far has been that um, it's it's very much the process is still very opaque, very uh, not very transparent. Uh, and uh, it's so when so when we have. Uh, although we have been successful in some instances, and that has been good, we have also. Uh, encountered several instances where the company is, you know, uh, operating in in very good faith. They believe they have excellent due diligence in their supply chains. They provide, you know, uh, you know, massive submissions with uh, all types of uh, audits and traceability and uh, a whole bunch of information to kind of support the claim that there is no forced labor. And customs tells you, we're not going to release the merchandise because we still have your, your proof of admissibility did not overcome our suspicion and we're not going to tell you anything beyond that. So we're, that's a big 
kind of concern that we have in this area that is that is constantly evolving. Um, and, and Nate, maybe you have something to add to that. Wait, before you get to mm -hmm. Nate, actually, Richard, I have a technical question about this. So, so the new yeah. advisory that came out today mm -hmm. um, actually has an appendix that goes through all of the force or the the withhold release orders right. um, for Xinjiang. And and so, like for example, in January there was an order that involved cotton and tomato products from Xinjiang. Do these right. orders say all cotton and tomato products? Or are they they more narrow into in particular types or from particular producers? I mean, how do they? What are the mechanics of those orders? So 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 uh, um, a withhold release order so far can have three modalities. One is where it, it lists the specific manufacturer exporters in, for example, China that are covered. So it basically says uh, the uh, a recent uh, withhold release order on silica-based products is a good example. There's a, uh, in June, Customs issued uh, a withhold release order on silica-based products by, uh, manufactured by Hoshine Silicon Industries and its subsidiaries. So basically, if you have any connection, if you have a product that includes silica-based products that has a connection to Hoshine or its subsidiaries, that product is covered by the WRO and is subject to a detention and potential seizure. So that's that's one example. Then you have other examples when when it's broader. So So for example, you have cotton, tomatoes, and downstream products from the Xinjiang region that's also issued this year. And that covers all cotton, all, toma all, all tomatoes, and downstream products like ketchup or like apparel uh, that, are, that can be traced back to, to Xinjiang. Uh, and then you have the even broader scenario, which as far as I know, um, I mean, I know two examples. One is cotton from Turkmenistan, and the other one is uh, tobacco from, um, from Malawi. So that's that's kind of like at that point it's even broader than regional it's countrywide yeah and and it, i i think one one real bottom line takeaway that here is that although it may seem for perhaps limited in scope because it has to do with like a particular location a particular supplier a particular product supply chains are so complex as we know it's just incredible how big an effect something like this can have on an industry you know when you think about um the many stages that that uh cotton goes through till final final product or that polysilicon goes through and the concentration of production sometimes like as we've seen in in uh in china and xinjiang in in those areas um it's just amazing how many companies that this can can touch. And so I think that like when we think about this as like an area that's a hot topic that will continue to be a focus, it really does make us you know take a hard look and think about, say, what industries could potentially be next, you know, um, or what regions could be next. Yeah, there's uh, to, to add to that, there's there are currently 51 active withhold release orders covering a broad range of products and a number of different countries. Um, and six of those uh, were issued in fiscal year 20 or to date have been issued in, in fiscal year 2021. Uh, but the big number that I think I, I keep going back to and I think is really telling about the enforcement climate right now is that if you look at, um, you know, years past, the number of detentions, the number of customs detentions were, you know, was a very small number. 
uh, it's been picking up gradually, and this year it exploded. So um, according to, to stats that Customs put out uh, at the end of last month, there are almost 700 shipments that have been detained under the, uh, under the six withhold release orders that were issued recently. Um, and part of that is that the cotton WRO um, is so broad, you know, has such a broad reach that um, it, it's affecting a whole bunch of different apparel uh, uh, companies at, through a number of, you know, different types of products. And so um, I think as this, con- as, as the effort continues to expand, we're just going to see a continued growth of the number of detentions uh, and and also likely maybe, you know, um, an, an increase in the scope of, of the WROs. Yeah, I mean, if you go to the to the advisory that came out today, I mean, it has a, a list of industries in Xinjiang that should be viewed, I guess, as suspect. And I assume all of these would be the proper topic of a, a withhold release order. So you've got, you know, cell phones, you've got a bunch of agricultural products. It's not just tomatoes. Mm-hmm. You've got electronics assembly. I mean, you've got a, a kind of a, a roadmap for what, you know, WROs might come later. And they could all be quite extensive in terms of their effect on supply chains, I would think. Yeah, I'd say I'd say there's Xinjiang has has provided kind of a good case study, and and certainly the uh, I feel bad saying it this way, but I guess the poster child of of this effort. But uh, I, I think it's important to to also keep in mind that it's it's an effort that will that will expand or and has expanded way beyond China, right? So there are other countries where where the government has serious concerns over. Uh, recruitment freezes and other human rights issues, such as Malaysia, um, and and that even within the Xinjiang effort, uh, it's it's not only limited to the Xinjiang region, but also uh, other areas in China where there are uh, uh, government subsidies, uh, where, where minority workers are also uh, potentially affected. So the scope of of any due diligence program that we're working on, not only you know. Uh, is focused on Xinjiang, but but also on the broader China region and in some of the other areas, because as we mentioned, downstream products are covered. So it's not only, and that is really, I think the trick from an, the, the, the difficulty from an enforcement perspective, if you have an input that starts in Xinjiang, but then, uh, you know, two tiers down, it's 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 it turned into a completely different product, uh, and is eventually exported to the and then imported to the U.S. from a from a country other than China. You have a very difficult time kind of identifying those connections. Let me maybe ask one final question to kind of wrap up the enforcement discussion before we pivot to compliance. But um, so clear that the, the the net that is being cast here very broad, uh, and as you walked us through before, Richard, you know some successes, some not successful attempts to sort of get these detention, to make the case that these goods should not be detained and overcome what sounds to me like essentially a, you're, you're more or less guilty until proven innocent kind, mm-hmm. of, kind of standard that CBP is holding companies to in terms of use of uh, sourcing from forced labor mm-hmm. um, that are subject to these WROs. So what is, as a practical matter, what do what does a company do if you get to the end of that process and you're told you get the very disappointing answer, even though they've proceeded in good faith, provided tons of information, and think that you are, have at least 
um, made a good case to overcome the presumption and maybe get the detention um, released. You're told no, uh, and we're not telling you why. Um, what does a company do at that point? Do we, do we, you, you made comments about sort of it's a very opaque process, not a lot of transparency. You know, it strikes me that you know, this is something that Tim and I have been talking about a lot, which is, you know, in the, in the context where, where we live in export and sanctions restrictions, we've seen, and some of the executive orders that came out in the last year, we've seen successful court challenges on those fronts, under due process grounds, APA challenges, et cetera. Is there anything like that in the works? Is that, is that, is that where you go if you're dissatisfied with this? I, I understand that may be a sort of a fraught cost-benefit analysis for a company to make because you're going to expend a lot and you're going to bring more attention to what's not a very, um, which, you know, a sort of unsavory situation or allegation relating to forced labor that companies aren't going to necessarily want to want to put front and center. But what, what happens then? What are the options perhaps of a company that gets to the end of that road in terms of just dealing with CBP and, and gets the no? Right. So the, there's what you're instructed to do with a merchandise first, which is to, you know, once if you're told that you're, if, if CBP refuses to admit the merchandise, uh, what's referred to as ex if excluding the merchandise, if the merchandise is excluded from admission, uh, then uh, the importer must either export or destroy the merchandise. Um, but I think the, you know, the more interesting question that you're asking is uh, whether there's you know, an opportunity then to challenge the administrative action in court. And the answer is yes. And uh, to date, we are aware of of one court case um, filed by um, an importer of, of uh, palm derivatives, uh, palm oil derivatives. So, I mean, the merchandise doesn't really matter, but it's it it, it raises at, at the court for the first time uh, this this issue of due process and transparency that I think is at the heart of the enforcement effort from the private practice and company point of view. Um, and as and as we always talk about on our side, what does that administrative record justifying detention or exclusion really look like? Right. And and it sounds like the answer is nobody really knows, no one what, knows. It, what it looks like. No one knows. No one knows. And we've been uh, there are several offices involved in this uh, in in this process at you know within customs. About four or five offices play a role in any in any detention. And, uh, and, and, and and certainly if you challenge it, uh, you know, you, you tend to escalate so that the, the lawyers, so chief counsel and the Office of Forced, La uh, Office of Forced Labor head in headquarters and other offices get involved. Um, but even then, you, you know, even un under that more exhaustive review, you just, your customs is not providing additional information as to the justification. And their, their basic rationale is that this is a law enforcement um, uh, proceeding and that they're not required to do so um, uh, as part of the law, or and, and there are no the regulations don't prompt that either. And so, I guarantee you that is the hill they're going to die on, unless or until they're told by court that they have to do otherwise. I right. I think so. I think right. so. Uh, Although that's so the hill that's the hill that the one three nine five nine lawsuits died on from the government perspective. I mean, once they once a suit was brought. They had to explain those designations, and it turned out they, they were creating them retroactively because they hadn't even really written down what it was, and then they did a crappy job. So it may be that a lawsuit is is really 
what it's going to take to get CPP to come up with some rationale for this. Or at least, so there, or at least explain it, or at least right. explain it and reveal it, right? Yeah. So there, there is, there's a single lawsuit in place right now, and I know that there's an interest by by some of the industry groups that have been um, uh, involved to to perhaps participate and and add to it, and that maybe some will bring additional cases. Uh, I, I, we really don't know the the um, the strength of the case. Uh, that was brought, so we don't. So it's it's hard to know whether it's a it's a great case to challenge or not. But I think fundamentally, the 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 basic um, uh, instance that is being challenged of of you know give us more information. If you're gonna if you're gonna detain and take our property, we should know more. You should be required to give us more. I think that's that's just basically it. So sorry, Nate, I interrupted you. Oh no, no, I was I was just thinking it, it's it's interesting for me to think about the practical incentives as well that that are sort of unique to the customs area in terms of like the kind of challenges that Tim's talking about in terms of timing things being detained and what if you, if you did succeed at the end of this process of litigation would that give you any kind of satisfying relief um I don't know Richard if you I know I know you have some thoughts on that yeah, I, I, I mean, thoughts that I've heard from from companies is that it doesn't, uh, because it takes, let, let's say, it takes a year and a half, maybe more, for the court case to uh, from from start to end. And in the meantime, let's say you import tomatoes, or let's say you import uh, palm oil or apparel, no matter what a commodity is, pretty much, uh, it that is, it will be stale by then, uh, and so. Uh, and and so from a from a product use perspective, you no longer have it's not not much of an incentive. And what you do is uh, you uh, uh, elevate the kind of PR risk that a company faces on this issue because even if you have a fantastic program, if you uh, up to this point, up to the point where you bring it up to the court case, it's all a, pr a private proceeding between the importer and customs. And that's something very important. Uh, the moment you file a, a lawsuit, then of course it's, it's no longer private. So uh, you, you, you threaten kind of tarnishing the reputation of the company um, in a way that, uh, you know, what we've seen so far is that companies are not particularly interested in doing. So, so on one hand, you know, you have you know, we've seen it with several uh, clients that, you know, we, we feel that we have a very good case in terms of, of bringing it and, and, and uh, uh, the, a record, a very good record has been, has been laid out in terms of like, you know, we are not getting enough information. This, it, this cannot be fair, but um, there's that limiting, those, there are those limiting factors, which I think in the short term are going to have, um, are going to be barriers to to for for some companies to move forward with litigation. Yeah, what you're describing also is is very similar to what we see yeah. in the sanctions and export controls context, where the cost benefit just doesn't really align for most companies to plow forward with a court challenge, unless it's sort of an existential threat, and it's like, well, we have nothing to lose. Let's take this to court, or um, you know, it's just as a matter of principle that they just can't abide whatever it is that the agency is trying to. Um, you know, tag them with in terms of a violation. So, but it, but it's 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 rare. It's you know we've seen more instances of it lately. Uh, I think in part because there was the feeling like well we have nothing to lose because if this stands then we're gonna 
be out of business or we're not going to be doing business in the US anymore or whatever. But it's it's a it's still you have to have that real the alignment is difficult to get that. Well, I mean, and and you've got to have the case. I mean, like right. so Xiaomi had a had a pretty good case that they weren't affiliated with the the Chinese military. So they were a good company to bring that challenge. And and there were, you know, it was their 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 reliance on US investors that was going to be cut off by that program was so great that they they had there was an upside to, to bringing the suit and a real downside to not bringing it. I mean, in, in terms of these suits, I mean, the, the risk is reputational and that is going to always be there that you elevate the issue. And I think that is an issue in the cases that we see as well. But the, the other thing that I would, would say in this area, so for example, if you're going to challenge the order about tomatoes in Xinjiang, you'd have to be prepared to take the position that there's that, that forced labor is not infecting that sort of production and potentially to either prove it or respond to whatever the government's proof is on that. And that's kind of, that strikes me as, you know, a big task in taking on the, the question of whether a particular industry is infected by forced labor is a finding that, you know, assuming there's any support for it, you'd really have to take on and, and prove yourself innocent, which would be a, you know, which would make a lot of these cases really tough cases. Maybe there's yeah, a, a Tim, more narrow version of it. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the a phrase that we use a lot in, in when discussing the enforcement context is that currently, uh, importers have to prove a negative. So they have to prove the absence of forced labor. And they not ha- they, they have to do it generally, you know, in every single industry that we've worked on, uh, they have to do it beyond the contours of their own uh, company and related companies, but with a number of different unrelated suppliers going back several tiers in the supply chain. Um, you know, for for those that have been working on this space like us know, know this anecdote but but you know for others they might find it interesting that when it uh when customs uh detains the merchandise um detains a shipment one of the uh documents that they request for example for a for a sh- for a shipment of uh cotton sweaters um is uh the time cards that are um for the for the people that pick the cotton used to make the 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 sweater so anyone that knows anything about supply chains knows that that is essentially impossible um and that you're being you know if you think of of you know going back these very complex supply chains and you know all the way back six seven tiers to get that level of detail you start to think that well you know maybe this is really not about you know, maybe there's just no way to win uh, right. because because the bar is set too high. And uh, and even if you have a top notch program, there's just it's it's too difficult to overcome. So let me seize on that. I think that's a great segue to our final topic uh, in terms of a, a top notch program and and proving negatives. And what do you need to be doing or what do companies need to be doing to to be proactive here and to, you know, sort of buttress these risks as best they can, given, given how active the enforcement climate is. So let me, let me maybe kick it over to Nate to start us off here as we perhaps try to get through this a little more quickly than we had planned to go through the compliance piece of this. But just in light of everything we've talked about, you know, what are some things that you and Richard are talking to clients about and, or the kind of problems you're helping them troubleshoot in terms of program development, thinking through these problems, you know, maybe in a calmer, forward-looking way and not necessarily just in the throes of an enforcement action. 
Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Um, really, I, I guess I'll start with just putting it plainly. It's not a brilliant sort of observation, but really what, what uh, companies are doing are taking a very hard look at their risks and their compliance efforts the, to address those risks. And, and uh, really everything flows from that. It's like the basic concept of due diligence in the human rights space. Um, and, and the extent of those efforts naturally varies a lot um, when you think about companies that are subject to current WROs um, versus other companies that um, say may have operations that touch on things that are relevant to current WROs like um, like manufacturing in China, um, connections with Xinjiang, um, Malaysia, other places. And so you, you see obviously a lot of different approaches that are that are commensurate with the risks that that companies are seeing. And so really like the goals of these these efforts are first of all, to make sure that you're effectively assessing and mitigating forced labor risks in 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 your company and also in your supply chain and making sure at the same time that, that these efforts are systematic, that they're documented, um, so that the company's in a position to provide meaningful assurances to stakeholders as necessary if they should face inquiries, say, from CBP, from customers, which is happening more and more frequently, investors, civil society, media. And so really these compliance efforts in, in practical terms, what, what we call it is, is developing a compliance program. And I think that anybody who's worked in-house in say, you know, sanctions areas, anti-corruption areas, you know, really any area of corporate compliance, you're sort of familiar with the building blocks of that. Um, it involves policies and procedures like codes of conduct, um, third party due diligence procedures, uh, screening of third parties is another major component. Um, and compliance management, when you think of, you know, ongoing risk assessment, continuous improvement, things like training are some really big areas. Um, and, and I, th I think like, you know, there's, there's so much very good and authoritative, um, guidance on this that's out there, but what we're seeing is that now that, that CBP has really emerged as this very important enforcer, people are naturally paying a lot more attention to the guidance that they issue, the guidance that they cite, you know, that they may talk about, you know, in, in discussions with people or in, in public, you know, uh, conferences or whatever. And, um, and so we, we track that closely. I mean, just in practical terms, you know, um, uh, we certainly look at their reasonable care publications um, and, and really authoritative overviews of what a compliance program should look like. They, they often cite to the Department of Labor's comply chain, um, it, which in turn cites to the responsible sourcing tool, um, which was developed by our friends at Verite um, in collaboration with the U.S. Department of State. Um, and so we really, we really track a lot of this and then like really see what it means for companies that are say starting from scratch or that are more mature and how they can strengthen their program or, or better memorialize it and, and make it um, and communicate it to the stakeholders. 
Um, and so, I mean, naturally that's something we're tracking closely. Anybody that's interested, Richard and I are happy to, to follow up with that. Yeah. One, so one related question I have, which is, you know, this is kind of the classic question that you get from clients on, on any of these, in any of these areas, but one of the examples that Richard just cited a, a few minutes ago kind of made me think of this, which is that if you're going to get the request from CBP for time cards, let's say, and um, you know, you're talking to a, a company that you're working with on a, you know, doing an audit or uh, doing a risk assessment of, of their operations and their supply chain, um, you know, and, and, and that's pretty, that's potentially on the table, right? Is it, well, are we going to go all the way back to the sort of lowest level supplier that we can find and, and do that, try to copy or collect, you know, the, the time cards, you know, how do we, how do you, how do you draw those lines or how do you assess kind of how much, whether that's, ne let's say strictly necessary perhaps, or advisable in a particular situation, number one, and then what are some of the practical obstacles that get in the way there? And, and there I'm thinking of a number of different things, which is, you know, especially in China, you're dealing with the kind of a hostile local government and now kind of anti kind of blocking laws and anti sanctions laws and other measures that are in place to pr really prevent people from being able to comply with these this regime in particular. So how how are we and, and that's really for both of you for Richard and Nate sort of how are we, how are you helping kind of look at those questions and assess those questions and then sort of what are some of the either legal or regulatory or practical impediments that you're going to companies are going to face as they're trying to sort sort this out right that's a great question i have to say that and and that's something that i think occupies a lot of our current attention is really um because uh, because we are dealing of course with limited resources and we have to think about where we can effectively direct them and and what gets them um you know is most important to cbp and and uh and in a lot of ways i feel like we're we're um we're sort of assisting cbp in a way of of really educating you know them and people about like what you really reasonably can get and uh and so i think like the way that that we're seeing companies go about this is um as i said starting with the risk assessment you know is just a real real core initial building block where you you sort of map your supply chain you really find out what are um what are your supply chain connections and relationships um and the materials that are really you know presenting the most risk to you and so you would focus your efforts there and then let me um, let me ask you let me stop you there Nate. so in terms of a risk assessment i mean given what's going on right now i mean wouldn't wouldn't the risk of having anything sourced from Xinjiang be probably so exceptionally high that the only real advice is to just get out. I mean, because the compliance challenges seem unmeetable. I mean, if you're going to have to go get time cards, not only just sample time cards from any of your suppliers there to show that they're actually paying their people, but then if, you know, going forward, you'd have to have the ability to go back and the idea that you could go to Xinjiang and get those time cards, given the, the atmosphere there right now seems almost zero. So right. I, I just don't see any option. If like, if you do the risk assessment, it, you start to see anything being sourced from, from Xinjiang and particularly items that are on that appendix list of the industries where the, the U.S. has seen forced labor. I don't know how you would comply with it, but maybe you, you have some thoughts. No, I, I, I think that it's, it's, a really, it's a really good point. And you're right, you're right that this risk assessment part of it is so key to get 
to the point where you can sort of pinpoint, you know, those, those supply chain links that present those kind of risks. And, and if you are finding materials sourced from Xinjiang, what, what companies are up against is that the, the climate there in terms of access by companies, um, by reputable third-party auditors is so affected by um, the degree of surveillance and fears about you know what what kind of consequences their auditor the personal risks to their auditors and to people who speak with their auditors um, that we're finding um, a lot of the most reputable um, auditors that you would typically go in to get a sense of these things and to get that kind of documentation um, are, are no longer operating there, and so that that really is is uh, at least for the time being. So that is like when you think about, you know, the kind of things that Richard was talking about and that you ultimately would need to prove a negative through documentation and you're dealing with this kind of um, significant obstacle that that you can see how this would play out into a company's sort of analysis of, say, what they want to, um, you know, how they may want to structure their supply chain uh, differently so that they can if they are asked, they can provide some more satisfactory answers. But, um, but uh, you know, also on this time card issue, I think that, you know, if you're dealing with something where you could sort of theoretically get that, say, out of Xinjiang, you know, if you were, had cooperation every way down the supply chain um, and, and the practical implications of people just for a whole bunch of business and commercial reasons, not wanting to say, you know, give their, their supplier relationship information to, to a party like three, four tiers up the supply chain, um, you know, you can you can see that you run into a bunch of practical di difficulties. And I think the most important thing is really making systematic efforts to try and get the things that that customs has asked and would likely ask in these kind of situations. And then, to the extent that you can't, to have a, a very thoughtful, clear narrative about what obstacles you faced and why you can't get them so that you're in a position to to uh, to account for that that limitation. Nate, let me add, let me add a point to, uh, to 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 Tim's question as well. Um, I Tim, I think you're right. If you have a connection to Xinjiang, you, odds are you're screwed. Um, it's 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 hard. Term, term term, term, that's a yeah. that's a term of art. Term of term of art. art. Yeah, it's a, it's. A, I mean, it, at this point, yeah. Uh, let me let me clarify that not a not a connection in general a connection in the U.S. supply chain um, because that is the scope of you know CBP's jurisdiction. So the products that are presented for importation, can you link them back to an entity in Xinjiang? Uh, you know, odds are it's 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 difficult. It's really difficult to prove the absence of forced labor, even if there even if there uh, if, even if there is no forced labor at that facility because of these. Uh, of what Nate has mentioned, that um, it's it's difficult to prove that there is no forced labor because you're not, you know, auditors aren't going in there, uh, and and you're you're coming in with a with a presumption of with a with a de facto kind of presumption of forced labor to begin with. So, for that reason, I think it's very hard. And uh, you know, you see, for instance, the the folks in the solar industry who are who import to the United States have 
uh, from what we understand, made the decision uh, uh, to to move away from 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 Xinjiang, for, at least as it concerns the U.S. supply chain. So I think that's point number one. And point number two is that uh, Xinjiang isn't always the main concern. So um, it, the the reason why you do traceability is is equal and an equally important reason to do traceability is to demonstrate that th that your products aren't coming from Xinjiang. So this happens a lot, for example, in the apparel industry. Uh, you have a product that is manufactured in China. The importing, you know, the the the, the documents that customs gets show the manufacturers being a Chinese company, and there's a WRO on Xinjiang cotton. So what customs wants to see is that if you're if you're telling them our cotton doesn't come from Xinjiang, our cotton comes from India, as is often the case, that you can show that you know the, you can provide proof to demonstrate that that's the case. So, so it kind of goes both both ways. I mean, the reasons why you need a a, 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 a solid traceability program is also to demonstrate that there is uh, no no Xinjiang in, in in those type of scenarios. Yeah, that's that's just been like a huge focus tra traceability programs from a compliance perspective. I mean, I think that that's just been a huge investment of of time and resources by companies because uh, it just it it's related to understanding of the supply chain for risk assessment purposes, but also you know to position yourself and you know knowing what the relationships are, knowing what kind of documentation you could you could provide, and I think like going through mock WRO exercises is sort of an interesting compliance trend as well, where um, where a company would select a, um, this is of course something we're working with companies on, would select a, uh, a shipment um, and, and say, you know, if, if this were detained, you know, let's, let's go through how, how we would deal with it. Um, and so, you know, issuing a document request that very much resembles what CBP would issue. Um, and most importantly, like starting the clock running, you know, because there's a finite amount of time that you can respond to this. And, and if you're getting information, not just from your own files, but from suppliers files, uh, you really want to pay attention to the turnaround times on those things. Yeah, it strikes me uh, just to sort of one final comment that you know, obviously on the sanction side, we worry often about ownership and tracing ownership interests. And sometimes that's very opaque and murky, and especially in places like China and Russia. And on the anti-corruption side, we're worried about, you know, government affiliations and control and other things like that. And that can be murky, especially with third parties in many countries. But it's, it strikes me that traceability is, is really a level above in terms of the the granularity and the challenge, just the practical challenge that that provides uh, companies or, or it presents to companies rather. And, um, you know, this is in general still a pretty new aspect of all this, right? And, and people are just really getting their arms around it. And so, you know, not surprising that, that there are some, um, you know, people are moving in fits and starts or, or trying to really ramp up quickly, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging, obviously. Yeah, Brian. Let me let me add let me add just a point to that. Uh, just I, I've been taking some notes here. Things I just wanted to add on based on what you've been saying. Uh, the first is to, on that point. Uh, you know, traceability is king at, right now. It's it's very important that a company have 
um, a, a robust internal compliance program of the type that Nate uh, described. But at the end of the day, when you know, for purposes of not not for you know these important uh, human rights objectives, but for the for the purpose of releasing your merchandise at customs, uh, you must be able to have. You, you must be able to demonstrate through a robust traceability mechanism the origin of the inputs that go into your product. So that's why, that's why you know we get to this conclusion that trace at the, at the moment traceability is king. Um, another point is, that we haven't discussed is that um, so far in this podcast, we've talked about the detention, right? There's you know what happens. Your merchandise is going to be detained, and it can also be seized. One thing we skipped over, I skipped over, but should have mentioned is that uh, there is, in addition to the detention and seizure uh, risk, you also have the risk of monetary penalties. Um, and, and there are several uh, uh, regulatory legislative vehicles that can lead to that. And also, you know, in the worst cases, criminal penalties. So uh, we're we're still we're still in the this is a very new law this is a new enforcement effort and so uh, penalties have been few and far between as far as we know um, but we we think that is likely going to be kind of the next frontier um, so that's something to keep in mind and the third uh, and last point is uh, you know I think maybe the listeners will be interested to know uh, what we know about how. Um, uh, CBP is uh, is is getting smart about supply chains, which uh, what it's, it's been really one of the hardest things, right? So customs is not used to you know inquiring about you know several tiers up the supply chain in the, in this way, uh, nor have necessarily um, uh, supplier you know the the importers, right? I mean this is a level of visibility that is unprecedented for the most part. There are some companies that are very sophisticated, you know, the apparel companies tracing their cotton back, you know, certainly we have that, but for most of, of, of the general population, let's call it, it that hasn't been the case. So um, uh, what one, one uh, interesting technique that customs has followed in order to get smart about supply chains, and they did this actually way before this big enforcement push, was to issue uh, what's what's referred to as survey audits. Customs makes the point that they're not audits and they're just surveys, but they, they're audits. I mean, they feel like audits. Um, and uh, it arose by any other name, right? Okay, right, exactly, exactly. And, and so the customs issues uh, a questionnaire um, to uh, a number of similarly situated companies. So for example, uh, you know, all of the bigger tobacco importers. And they ask questions about what the company does to track the origin and to, and to uh, uh, provide oversight over human rights issues, forced labor issues. And, and so that's kind of like a, um, a substantive kind of response part of the questionnaire. And then they also select some uh, entries, customs entries for transaction testing, where they where they ask the company to walk them through uh, how they go about the process and, and kind of the mechanics of the of the importation. And so with those two, um, uh, and that, that second, that second, uh, the transaction testing, the focus of that is to kind of get insight into the the visibility that the, that the importer has into uh, into the tiers in the supply chain. In other words, the traceability. And with 
And by doing that many times over and talking to many different constituents, Customs has, in fact, gotten smart on a number of different industries. And I, we, you know, we predict that they will continue to do that and get smarter and smarter into these, uh, these industries of concern, uh, such that when one company comes out and tells them you know, how great their program is, they'll say, well, thank you. I mean, this is really good information. And then they'll ask the same, they'll ask another company, well, do you have this? Because we know of other companies that are doing this or that. Uh, and so a, a quick example is uh, there's new technology that is being used to trace the origin of fabric, of cotton, for example, um, uh, and, and uh, that, is, that is being piloted by a number of, of companies. And now you see customs mentioning and asking companies if they're part of that pilot and if they're using those type of technologies. So as customs learns something from one company, they're 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 asking those questions of others. And I think that's kind of, it'll go round and around this until kind of where we reach another, the next phase of enforcement. And so, so, so for our, our friends at CBP who are listening, um, they're already, they were already smart, but they're becoming even, smart. even, yeah. even smarter, right? We're, like, we're always, it's shocking how smart they are at this point. Um, we're always quick to um, pat our friends in the agencies on the head and let them know that we we love them and they're doing a good job. And we're not meaning to cast aspersions on them. So no, no, I'm I'm a former C, I'm former yeah. CBP. I know, I mean, it's, and I know. we love you. I know, I know. <laughs> um, all right, well, I think we're basically out of time here. Um, Nate, let me give you maybe one last chance to sound off. If you any any final thought, Richard kind of just ran through his final thoughts. Any final thought that you wanted to add that we didn't get to before we let you guys go? I um. I, I know you have I a plane. I know you have a plane to catch. So yeah, you know. thank you, thank you. That's so thoughtful of you. Um, but I, I, uh, yeah, there, I think I would just flag a couple of areas that are that are sort of major challenges in this area that that the companies are are are, are working through very carefully. And and I'll just mention them. You know, just just um, as areas to flag as you're getting into this area that are just useful to keep in mind. Um privilege considerations as this becomes a more heavily enforced you know formally former ugh, sorry formal area of enforcement um privilege thinking about it how to structure it how to make sure that your attorneys and your auditors are working together properly i just want to flag that as like a really important consideration for people to think about um and we've talked about the supplier cooperation point um which is really important because that that is really you know you're you're going to be relying on third parties you know in your supply chain so much to help position you to defend yourself against these kind of things um that it's really important to sort of see things from their perspective and um and really you know understand the reasons for their objections and one major thing that 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 uh is a real obstacle that we're dealing with these days is is uh, blocking laws uh like the anti-sanctions laws that have recently come about in china that are sort of playing into this picture of the the range of reasons why suppliers may be reluctant to provide information and why people may be reluctant in companies to seek that information so i, I just wanted to flag those couple of issues just because they're major things people should be aware of yeah, no, good, good final notes. I think we could spend probably another half hour talking about those couple <laughs> of things, but but we're but we are out of time. Um, and so with that, I uh, we want to give a warm embargoed uh, thank you to Richard and Nate uh, for uh, a very very interesting conversation, deep dive on for 
forced labor. Maybe maybe deep dive on forced labor is a more politic way to uh, title the ep- the um, the episode um, as opposed to what I uh, suggested before. So, um, but we thank you guys a lot. We really appreciate it. This has been honestly very illuminating. Even just even though we talk to you guys about these things in some form or fashion all the time, it's still it's great to kind of really get into it in, in this level of detail. So we appreciate it and thank you both. So thank you to again our friends and colleagues Richard Mojica and Nate Langford. We really appreciated uh, their time today and their expertise and insight. That was that was fun. That was really interesting. I hope everybody out there appreciated sort of a different perspective on some issues that we we spent a lot of time on, but we're coming at it from a totally different angle. Yeah, I was struck by the compliance challenges and, and also by some of the issues related to due process. I mean, I really do think that those the, the potential for lawsuits in this area, um, I think is relatively significant. But I, I do think that, you know, one of the issues that we talked about in terms of, you know, ha- how would you have a good case um, is something that is going to, it might take a while for a good case to percolate because some of these things will be substantively pretty hard to challenge. Right. Yeah. And I just think in the natural course of things is as enforcement levels stay high, sooner or later, there'll be a case or two that get brought that maybe hit on, hit the right notes or have the right facts to yeah. support a challenge. And, and, you know, we'll have to see just as we've seen in, in the other in sanctions and export controls context that it just kind of stars have to align to, to make it work. But And, we'll, and then we'll I think the on. compliance challenges are so huge um, that that what is going to wind up happening most likely, and maybe this is what you know the enforcers want to have happen, is that once you have a region like Xinjiang that is going to be so heavily linked with forced labor, from it, it seems to me that the almost always the most efficient resource-based decision and risk-based decision is going to be to just get out of that province and try and supply your, your goods from elsewhere because there's just no way to win if you do, and the risk right. is going up. You know, yeah, so substantially. With with as Richard said, with respect to U.S. supply chains, that may very well be the case. Of course, we know from our own discussions on these issues that that's easier said than done sometimes. And the time and the money and the effort and the politics and the all the rest of it that uh, it takes to shift that is not something that can usually be done overnight or even in a matter of a few months. It's much longer term, and so trying to forecast what what's necessary, what's advisable you know, how do you make those smart risk-based decisions taking into account again, all risks, not just on the U S side, right. but elsewhere is, is very challenging. And so, you know, no, um, there's no uh, shortage of, of tough calls and tough issues that have to be navigated in, in this area. So, um, so with that, I think we're going to, we're going to wrap for today. We were potentially planning to do a bit of a freestyle lightning round, but we're going to skip uh, the lightning round for this week because we we did have such a lengthy uh, and interesting conversation with Richard and Nate, but we'll, we'll come back next time raring to go. Um, maybe an all lightning round maybe, show next time. Maybe an all lightning round uh, episode next time. Perhaps, uh, perhaps Tim will be recording from north of the border. We'll see. But um, in any event, uh, that's all. Fingers crossed. But uh, that's all we have for this episode. So thanks again for everybody. Uh, for joining us. Hope you enjoyed. Um, Please tune in next time. We'll be back in late July with our next episode. Uh, And until then, stay well, stay sanctions free. Thanks, everyone. Stay sanctions free, everyone.